Just a couple of uh, New Hope details this morning before I begin teaching. Um, one is there's two Sundays left for you to sign up for the uh, Lugnuts baseball game. And you've got to help me again with the date, Larry. That's July, 20, July 23rd. So even though it's a long ways off, you only have two more weeks to buy your tickets. So you need to see Larry after the service if you're going to participate in that. And a uh, new thing as of today, as of this weekend, on our website, you'll find that there's a new button on there for giving electronically to New Hope. So if you're used to giving through the offering boxes in the back and you want to participate in a way when maybe when you're on vacation or you want to do it electronically, you'll find that available for you now on the website. And one last thing. I want you to know that every single week, actually every single day of every single week, of every single month, of every year, I have one picture that appears on my computer screen on a regular basis. This is the picture that I have. This is a group of guys just before they assaulted Normandy. It's taken 20 minutes before their landing craft hit the beaches. Every day it reminds me of the price that these guys and others paid so that we have the freedom to do what we get to do. If you're here this morning and you served in the military, you have family members in the military, would you stand for a minute? We want to acknowledge you. (laughs) Thank you for the service that you've given. I, I do not take it for granted as well as other Americans. Even at a time when... It seems like we are taking our freedom for granted. I think we live in a period of time, our generation, in which the price that was paid by previous generations is a little bit eroding away more and more each day. You're going to see this morning in the text that we're looking at that the nations get to a point where they totally shun God. And there's a raging from the nations against the things of God. You might even be seeing that in our own nation today as we just kind of stiff-arm God and push a little bit further away from the things that our forefathers fought for. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, Revelation chapter 11 as we finish up with the seventh trumpet. If you're new here this morning, haven't heard where we're at, we're in week 22 on a teaching through the book of Revelation. You may be thinking, how in the world can you study Revelation for 22 weeks? Well, I'm here to tell you we have 20 more weeks to go, okay? So we're in Revelation chapter 11 this morning and and working our way. Sometime this fall, we'll be through with 43 weeks of study. And uh, I personally am enjoying it a lot, although it's really heavy material. It's weighty and it, it bears you down, but it's also a huge reminder of what is in store for us as followers of Jesus Christ But also, what is in store for those who have rejected Jesus Christ? And that's why the revelation is so intriguing. We see what's going to happen to us, but we see what's going to happen to friends, family members, co-workers who are rejecting the truth that's written here. We find in in the seventh trumpet that something is set in motion that becomes absolutely irrevocable. The wheels are in motion. There's no turning back. We looked at it in chapter 10. This is what it says up on the screen. Chapter 10, verse 7. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached 
to his servants, the prophets. This mystery of God is what the teaching is about this morning, this consummation of God's plan. So before we go any further forward, I'm just going to invite you to pray with me for a minute that God will register this in our hearts. Would you do that? Bow your heads. Heavenly Father, uh, we ask, first of all, that you would take this moment in time in which our hearts have been prepared through worship, that you would focus us on these words that have been written down 2,000 years ago. Father, they're just as relevant today as they were when they were written. Your word has never returned void. You said you send it out and it will not come back to you void, but that it's sent out for a purpose. And for those of us in this auditorium this morning, we ask that you would give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, to understand what you're saying to our generation specifically. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The wheels that are in motion in this mystery of God that's being proclaimed are unfolded in such a way that those who looked at it in the past, in the Old Testament, would have seen a bit of the pieces put together. There were proclamations made by men like Isaiah who wrote of a future day, but they couldn't quite understand. Let me give you an example of this. Isaiah 34.4. Isaiah wrote, All the stars of heavens of the heavens will be dissolved, and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. You see, he had part of the picture. He understood there was something coming, but God didn't reveal everything to him. Then when Peter wrote the book of 2 Peter, he put more of the details together. Look with me up on the screen, 2 Peter 3.10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. So you step from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and you get a little bit more of the puzzle put together. And then comes the book of Revelation, and all the pieces begin to be sewed together, and the mystery of God begins to be understood. So this seventh trumpet that we're looking at this morning, I want to make sure you're clear on this. The seventh trumpet that's about to sound is after we've looked at the seven seals in the first few chapters. Each of those had a judgment with it. Then the six trumpets we've looked at so far, each of those had a judgment with it. And now the sounding of the seventh trumpet unveils something that happens through the rest of the tribulation, the last three and a half years. And they're called the bowl judgments, B-O-W-L. And there are many judgments associated with this. But this seventh trumpet is not the last trumpet. It's not what's referred to when the believers are raptured away. The last trump or the last trumpet is a sound or a phrase that's associated with the rapture of the church. The body snatching away. God calling up to heaven those who follow Jesus Christ. Here's an example of it from 1 Corinthians 15, 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. I've found recently that I'm going to need to teach one Sunday on just what the rapture is. This week I had a conversation with a college student who attends here, and I was talking with some other students about the rapture of the church. And in the middle of the conversation, 
one of the students stopped and said, what is the rapture? Now I thought perhaps that was unique to her. And then as I looked around the room, I saw all the other college students looking at me with a lint in their eye of, okay, I'm ready for that definition too, realizing they didn't understand at all. So we started having a conversation and I understood that they had never in their lifetime ever heard a teaching on what the rapture is. And these are young people who have been raised in the church. So I was impressed by the Spirit to think, wow, have a responsibility here to make sure everybody understands what is the rapture. Well, this seventh trumpet that we're talking about this morning is not what's called the last trumpet or the rapture, the taking away of the church. It specifically is speaking about the unfolding of judgments. Three things in specific. It covers an extended period of time. It goes all the way three and a half years through the tribulation. It, it announces waves of judgment that just fly over the earth. And these judgments will not be described for you until chapter 15. Because between next Sunday and the beginning of chapter 15, chapter 12, 13, and 14 are the descriptions of the Antichrist and the activities of the one with the label called 666. So as we begin looking at him and his characteristics, we step back to the beginning of the tribulation. We examine the tribulation for three chapters through the eyes of the Antichrist, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, arriving right back at chapter 15, which is the same point of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Everybody clear on that? Got that? Okay. So here we go. Chapter 11 and verse 14 is where we left off last week. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to chapter 11 of the book of Revelation. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. On the very first Sunday, we studied the book of Revelation. When Jesus said to John, behold, I'm coming quickly. I told you that was the word entekai, which means when it happens, it's going to happen very quickly. It's going to unfold. This is not that word. This is the word taku, meaning it will happen suddenly. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the seventh trumpet sounds and it happens suddenly. And no one is prepared for what's coming and what's going to unfold here. What's known in theological circles as the wrath of God. The first three and a half years that we've studied up to this point are going to seem like a day in kindergarten class compared to the last three and a half years. Violent taking over of the earth. And there's an immediate response, you notice, at the announcement there's an immediate response when the trumpet blows. There's an announcement of victory. Do you see that? The seventh angel sounded, and as a result of that, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and our God. And it says, there were loud voices in heaven. There's a word I want you to really get down as we move through the rest of the book of Revelation because this is a word that's going to occur over and over again. It's like we saw the word for conqueror, nakao, in the first part, you're going to see this word occur over and over again. It's the word megas. Look at the definition for it. The word megas is associated with the word loud or great, big. So here's the definition. Exceedingly great, high, large, loud, mighty. Here's how I can equate it for you. If you've gone to a uh, demonstration of, uh, let's say, the Blue Angels, all right, and you see a demonstration of fighter jets. And as they move across the runway, somebody kicks in the afterburners and they go completely vertical. 
And the thunder that roars across the airfield is so powerful, you can feel it vibrate in your chest. That's not megas, all right? Megas is when you're standing out in a field and a summer thunderstorm comes through and the roaring of the thunder is so powerful, it nearly knocks you over. That is megas. So let's say that word together, megas. You gotta feel it really deep down in your chest and in your gut because that's the way the ancients would have done it. Okay, let's say it again. One, two, three. Megas. Makes you feel guttural, doesn't it? Okay, this is big. There was a megas announcement. And what is this huge announcement? This megas announcement. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. That's the huge announcement. Now notice very specifically, there's a use of a singular term there. It's not plural. It doesn't say the kingdoms. It doesn't say the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom. Why? At this point in time, all the nations of the world are under one ruler. They're under the Antichrist. And the kingdoms have become the kingdom. And they're one. And the kingdom of this world has been taken away and becomes the kingdom of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Jesus understood that the kingdom is singular. When he spoke about Satan, many titles throughout Scripture refer to Satan. The the dragon, Beelzebub, the prince of the earth. Jesus referred to him as the prince of this world. Look up on the screen, John 12, 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, meaning Satan, will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now, when you think about this announcement that the earth and the universe is being taken from Satan's rule and Jesus is taking it back, does it not seem premature? I mean, we're not at the end of the tribulation. Why at this point do they make this announcement? Because in heaven, in eternity, there is no time. There is no tomorrow or yesterday. Everything is the same. And so they're making an announcement, a proclamation, because victory has already happened. Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, and therefore sin was defeated. So since sin was defeated, death was defeated, victory has already taken place. So you see them making a proclamation. It's victory. It's a megas announcement. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord. So he's right now involved in a spiritual reign, reigning over the earth. One day, he will physically reign over this planet. Now, note this. Satan will not surrender this earth easily. You saw in trumpet number five and trumpet number six, lots of demons released from hell covering the surface of the earth. The bold judgments get far worse than that. But whatever efforts Satan launches, he cannot stop the return of the king. There is nothing that can stop the wheels that have been put in motion as much as he's going to fight against it. And that's why you see heaven busting out in this song, making this mega announcement, saying this is incredible. This kingdom has been returned. Daniel, Isaiah, many of the prophets saw the same thing. Look with me up on the screen. Daniel 7.14. He says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The angel Gabriel saw the exact same thing. Do you remember when he came to Mary and he announced the birth of Jesus? 
he said to her something very specifically, that he is going to be the one who will, look up on the screen, and behold, Luke one thirty one. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be what class? Megas. He will be great. He will be Megas, and he will call, be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. This is a monumental moment. This is what was anticipated in the Old Testament, announced in the New Testament, declared in the book of Revelation. Jesus himself was crucified for making this declaration. Do you remember he's standing before the Supreme Court? The Sanhedrin is all gathered together. The judges look him in the eye and say, we declare you before God and man. Do you say that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God? What did he say? I am. Look at his declaration. Mark 14, 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of dunamis power, megas power, and coming with the clouds of heaven. So this is what causes all of heaven to praise. They understand the kingdom is being established. So men and angels and God himself Proclaim this truth. Okay, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So all of a sudden we hear an echo. It's like an antiphonal echo. You ever hear a really large choir? You've been to a concert? And then there's this antiphonal echo, a smaller choir. This is what you're seeing here. Really big choir, mega announcement. And then this group of 24, we zero in on them, and they make one specific declaration. They have like their own little worship meeting, and they anticipate the second coming of Jesus. I'll show you how to see that in just a moment. There's three specific things that they give thanks for. One, Christ reigns supreme. See that? We give you because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. They thank him for that. In the next verse, you're going to see because he judges righteously. And the third thing you're going to see is he rewards. He gives you gifts, rewards, if you're a follower of his. I'll show you that in just a minute. But there's something really significant here. Do you notice that it says, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were. What's missing? who is to come. Why? Because they're making a declaration. He's already taken it back. They don't need to say who is to come because he's already come. It's already taken place. So they make a declarative statement. You are the one who was. You are the one who is. Stop. You are everything. So you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Now remember that word that you learned just a few minutes ago, megas. Look at the definition for it again. Megas, exceedingly great, high, large, loud, mighty. Okay, take that word, megas, and combine it with this other word that's used here for power, dunamis. Especially miraculous power. Ability, power, strength. 
It's the word for which we use the word dynamite. Explosive. Dunamis. Megas dunamis. You have taken the greatest power known to man and known to all of heaven, and you have taken back the earth. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. If Jesus has this great power, all this authority, why doesn't he wipe out evil now? That's the question that's asked of me on a regular basis. After the second service last week, I had an individual come and ask me that question. This week, throughout the week, I had an individual come and ask me that question. Students who are in world philosophy classes, philosophy of religion classes, say, we commonly get into this debate. If God is so good, why is there evil in the world? If God is so powerful, why does he not remove evil? Bet you're all waiting for the answer, huh? I'll give you the answer that I give every single student that I ever talk to. This is an answer, hopefully, that you can use when you talk to someone because it's asked a lot in our generation. The mistake is this. Most individuals believe that God's desire to wipe out evil is greater than his desire to show grace and mercy. But in truth, God's grace and mercy are equal. Yes, he wants to wipe out evil and will one day. But what we're witnessing right now is a time of his mercy. Catch this. If individuals who do not follow after God really want God to remove evil from the earth, they would not like the results. Because that means removing evil people if God would remove evil. Here's how God sees someone who is separated from him who does not belong to him through Jesus Christ. Specifically, Romans 3.10 says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. So you understand philosophically that to remove evil from the earth means removing evil people who do not belong to God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Pretty touchy territory, isn't it? That's a hard subject to discuss with people because typically when someone says to you, why not let God remove evil from the world, it's hard to look back at your friend and say, well, he'd have to remove you. It's a truth, though, according to Scripture, that God is now operating within this time of grace and mercy, but eventually he shuts the door and his wrath takes over. Verse 18, actually verse 18a, and the nations were enraged. You've got to ask yourself, what in the world do the nations have to be angry about? Well, for sure, in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, they've taken it on the chin, haven't they? There's been a lot of hits against the nations. But that is not why they're enraged. They're enraged because they want to have their own way. Scripture confirms this. The nations of this world eventually reach a point where they stiff-arm God completely and turn their back on him. David wrote about this way back in the book of Psalms. Psalms chapter 2 and verse 1. Why do the heathen, meaning the nations, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. See, it's like teenagers with house rules. I grew up with it up until the age of 12 or 13 with mom and dad's rules, but now that I'm an adolescent, 
I don't care for those rules so much. So what Scripture is saying is that the nations get to a point where they want to just shuck off God's rules, the rules that he put in place. So Scripture says here in Revelation 18, and the nations were enraged. There's a specific word that's used here. The word is orgidzo, and it means to become exasperated. Oh, I'm not taking this anymore. This is the exasperation of the nations. We don't want you, God, as our ruler over us. And they get to the point, apparently, where they're no longer afraid. You get to the point in your life where you're no longer afraid of God. You've crossed a dangerous line. These nations apparently get to the point where they're no longer afraid of the outcome of what could happen to them. We saw this when we studied the life of Pharaoh. When we looked at the book of Exodus, Pharaoh was allowed to go to a certain point in which he constantly hardened his heart against God, even though God displayed himself in powerful ways. There was a point where God said, fine, you want your way? Have it. And his heart became seared. This is what Scripture is describing here. So verse 18, And your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. So we see that Jesus is not only the lamb, he's also the lion because he comes in his great wrath. And we're seeing here that he's going to come and judge. It says, for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants. Who are those people? That's you. You're the ones who are going to get the rewards. Flip with me in your Bible over to Revelation chapter 22, if you don't mind. This is an important verse that you should underline as a reminder of who you are in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Jesus Christ, he says something very specific about you. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. This is a reminder that you should tell yourself every day, I get rewards from Jesus for following him. Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You know, when I look at this, it doesn't say to render to Billy Graham according to what he has done. It says to every man, mankind, Adam, man, woman, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the great and the small, you receive rewards from your king. That's what he says, and I'm bringing them with me when I arrive. The last part of that verse says, to reward the small and the great, but also to destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, at first glance, in this very green time that we live, we would say, well, those are those who pollute the earth. Well, actually, no, that's not the case. It is those who pollute the earth with sin, It's not those who destroy the natural earth. It's those who are destroying the earth because of their sinful lifestyle. Now, at this point in my studies, I'm looking at this text and saying, man, it really appears strange to me that this worship team is worshiping God for judgment. I have never heard a worship song in my life that declares God's judgment. It's always about his love and his mercy and his grace. 
But these guys are praising him for his judgment. And I've never seen that before. And I think it's because we have a strange idea about what it means for a throne and a kingdom to exist. Because we're not kingdom people in the sense that we live under the reign of a king. We don't think in those terms. We think in a very democratic mindset. But these individuals are praising him because his kingdom is being established. It helps you when you get to this very last verse, verse 19, to understand exactly why they're praising God. Let's look at it in detail. Verse 19, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, and sounds, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Now you've got to ask yourself, why in the world the reappearance of the ark at this point? We haven't seen this since the days of Indiana Jones, okay? All of a sudden, it's back, and it's in the book of Revelation. What is going on here? Now, I understand the temple of God being opened because the representation here is the temple of God is his presence. He throws the doors open and says, come on in. Be part of the fellowship, eternal fellowship with God. That's why the temple doors are open. But this thing about the Ark of the Covenant, what's going on here? Let me show you an artist's rendering of what they believe the Ark of the Covenant looked like. And notice it's not just the Ark. It's the Ark of the Covenant. This particular device that God personally described to be built by man was carried around with the children of Israel. Now you remember the rejoicing and celebration in the Old Testament when Solomon built the temple. The first temple was so magnificent that when the individuals carried the Ark of the Covenant to the temple, sat it down inside the Holy of Holies, the roar from the nation could be heard great distances away because people were celebrating what? That God's presence was with them. They were celebrating that God, his symbol of his existence, was among the people. So that's one representation of this. But there's something else significant about this. What was inside the ark? There's the rod that Aaron carried, the rod that budded, we're told in Scripture, and the commandments of God. Now, we call them the Ten Commandments. God calls them His Word, the Word of His covenant. What is a covenant? Look at the definition with me up on the screen. Diatheke means this, properly a disposition, a contract, a divisory will. So when God gave the commandments to the people of Israel, the people of earth, in truth, you do this, you do this, 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 and this, I will be your God and you will be my people. God's covenant was being established by putting the terms of the contract inside the ark. So his presence was with them and his word was with them. So what we see being celebrated here is the fulfillment of the terms of the contract. The contract is being fully executed. So heaven is busting out in praise. Not just the big choir, but the little choir, and they fall prostrate before God because God has kept his word. He always keeps his word. He never returns from his word. He always establishes it. 
And so all of heaven is watching this and saying, you have taken your megas dunamis and you have taken the earth back. That's what this end of chapter 11 is about. The sounding of the seventh trumpet announces this period of time. So here's the four points that I take away from this when I look at these last four verses here. Jesus is sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Nothing will change that. One day, he will rule over the planet, over the universe, and take it away from Satan. Third one, when he returns, he's bringing rewards for you, for those who are the redeemed, but eternal judgment for those who have rejected him. This megas dunamis, this same great power that he has to save, he also uses to judge They are symbiotic in relationship. It's true to the character of God. So what we see here in the midst of the fury and wrath of the great tribulation is a God who throws open the temple doors and lets us look inside the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was that no man was allowed to go to except one guy one time a year. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we get to look at the Holy of Holies and see this ark that's reminding us of his faithfulness and his love. Do you notice the response on planet earth in that last part of that verse? On earth there was earthquakes and fires and flashes of lightning and thunders and a great hailstorm. Earth echoing what was happening in heaven. Constant reminder for us We as worshipers, we're about to step into a worship song to close the service. We get to echo here on earth what is taking place in heaven. That's what our worship is about, praising what's taking place in heaven right now, what he has done for us. So would you join me in prayer as we think about this specifically? We step into the song praising God. Let's just bow our heads and close our eyes and thank him through prayer as we step into the song. Heavenly Father, We've taken time to look at your word this morning. You have taken us to a place to be refreshed again, to be established again in what we believe and why we believe what we believe. That Jesus Christ indeed is King of kings and Lord of lords. You sent him to redeem the world and through salvation, through his blood, we can stand here as men and women, children, and proclaim a truth. We have no fear of the future. You have redeemed us. But with that same redemption, Father, you will someday call us to be with you. Father, we look forward to that day. We celebrate you on your throne. It's in Jesus' name we proclaim these things. Amen.